I heard uh, an admonition read a little while ago, uh, which said that the meditation retreat is a rare opportunity to look inward at the mind's true nature. Sometimes I hear myself say that enlightenment is living in stillness. And sometimes I hear myself say, enlightenment is living in stillness and silence. I request the dawn to turn and face towards me, please. Thank you. So, uh, saying that enlightenment is living in silence and stillness, there's different ways to hear that. One way is, living in silence and stillness one is enlightened another way to hear it is that enlightenment itself lives in silence and stillness another way to hear it again is when living in silence and stillness there is enlightenment Another way to hear it is, silence and stillness is available wherever we are in this life. When we avail ourselves of that silence and stillness, we are entering the realm of awakening. When we get distracted from the silence and stillness, we are distracted from awakening. When we enter silence and stillness and live there, all activities of awakening are functioning. So it is hard for many living beings to understand that there can be a great activity without moving. But the awakened activity does not move, does not speak, and yet it can appear to move and speak as benefits beings. Deluded activity seems to need to move. It's hard to understand, in the realm of delusion, it's hard to understand activity with no movement. Not impossible, but, but enlightened activity doesn't move. And when we practice sitting still, we're doing a ritual. We can, we can understand that we're doing a ritual. One can understand that one is practicing a ritual 
of embodying and enacting enlightenment by sitting still. I, I wanted to talk to you about the um, kind of Zen, which is, you could call, uh, Bodhisattva Zen. How many of you have not heard, not heard the word Bodhisattva before? Anybody? So Bodhisattva is a word, and it sometimes is translated Bodhi as awakening or enlightenment and sattva as being. A Buddha is all, sometimes could be translated uh, as an awakened one. Bodhisattva is more like an awakening one, an awakening being, a being in the process, the ongoing process of awakening, of enlightening, of enlightening others and self together. Uh, it can seem to be a, for example, it could seem to be a human being, but it's not exactly a human being. It's the, I would say, it is the, uh, it is the spirit of awakening, which can manifest in a in a human being, but it could manifest in other beings too. We we have a, a custom of using the term living being or sentient being, and the custom of also speaking of Buddhas. Bodhisattvas are sentient beings. They're not yet, even though highly evolved sometimes, they're still living beings. Buddhas, strictly speaking, are not living beings. They're Buddhas. So I don't know uh, if all of you aspire in the same way. I don't know if all of you aspire in a being that's enlightening. I don't know if you have the same aspiration as bodhisattvas. And I do not, it's really okay with me if you do not have the same aspiration as enlightening beings. Many, uh, many, Zen, many students have come to practice Zen, and some of them have come to talk to me and said, I've heard about bodhisattvas and their aspirations, but I must confess I do not have bodhisattvic aspiration. I just came to practice Zen to improve my life. I came for, to, uh, for my own happiness. I'm meditating because I think it might be beneficial to me. Uh, it's not that I don't care about other people, but I'm primarily concerned on my own happiness. And I've heard bodhisattvas are different. And I must say, I don't really share their aspiration. Can I stay at the Zen Center? And I, so far, have said yes. You're welcome to stay, even if you do not have the same aspiration as a bodhisattva. The type of Zen practice which I'm you have a nice drum in the other room. If it was here, I would be pounding it. 
saying bodhisattvas are really great. <laughs> the world needs bodhisattvas in a really intense way. We need people who have bodhisattva aspiration to help everybody, including the people who do not have bodhisattva aspiration. Bodhisattvas are totally devoted to all beings. Yeah, that's, so what's the bodhisattva aspiration? You can, you, can, you can modify it a little bit this way and that way, but basically a requirement to be a bodhisattva is an aspiration, is a wish. As the word aspiration means a big wish, a great wish. It's a wish. But we usually don't say, I aspire to lunch, or I aspire to brush my teeth. We have other wishes which are not as extensive as the bodhisattva aspiration. Bodhisattva aspiration is very extensive. It is totally extended. It reaches all living beings, and it wishes not only to help all beings, but to realize Buddhahood in the process of helping all beings. So some people, many, many people, it's, it's, it's wonderful, many people wish to help a lot of beings. Some people wish to help all beings, but then also they say, some people say, well, I, I'm actually, I'm practicing to help all beings, but I can't, I'm not interested in enlightenment, not to mention complete, perfect enlightenment. I'm just, that's a bit too much for me. I can't say I aspire to complete, perfect Buddha enlightenment. But I do want to help all beings. And the person might also say, I understand that there's an inconsistency there. Because if you want to help all beings, why not have the best understanding so that you could? Another way to put it is, another inconsistency in wanting to help all beings but not aspiring to the enlightenment of a Buddha is that the enlightenment of a Buddha is not something that's applied to helping all beings. It is helping all beings. Buddha's enlightenment isn't like some, some guy has a great enlightenment and then he helps beings. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. Buddha's enlightenment is actually helping all beings. Right now, for example, Buddha's enlightenment is helping all beings. And many of those beings that it's helping don't know it and are sort of distracted from this help which Buddha is offering. So Buddha is, it's not exactly that Buddha helps all beings, but Buddha is the helping of all beings. So bodhisattvas actually aspire to this thing, this, this, in, this Buddha, this enlightenment, which is in fact helping all beings. They aspire to that. And again, they don't aspire to necessarily I'm going to be a Buddha. They aspire to give their life to the thing which is helping all beings, which is Buddha. They aspire to realize Buddha, but not like I'm going to realize. A lot of people, that's probably the problem that a lot of people have. 
how can I realize Buddha? Well, it's, you're, you're right. It's not exactly that you're going to, but you can also just gently offer your life to the thing, to the process that's benefiting all beings. In other words, you can, I would wish to give my life to the realization, to the manifestation of perfect enlightenment, the most effective way to help beings where they're at, that's Buddha. And where a lot of people are at is they do not, they're not yet ready to receive the help. I mean, people who practice a long time are still not ready to actually say, okay, Buddha, I'm ready. Come on. I'll tell you a story about that later if you remind me. So that's what I'd like to talk to you about is this bodhisattva thing. This bodhisattva ideal and the bodhisattva path. The bodhisattva path is sometimes called the great vehicle. The great vehicle of living for the greatest benefit for all beings. So if you, know, if you don't yet have this aspiration, I, I completely understand and support you where you're at. But may I talk about the bodhisattva thing while I'm here? Is that OK? Anybody have any problem with that? Thank you. Uh, a, a sentient being, a living being, uh, can sense or experience various wishes arising in the mind. The mind of a sentient being has wishes in it quite consistently. And again, sometimes a great wish arises in the mind of a living being. For example, this one. And when it first arises, this is a, this is a when it first arises, actually, and every time it arises, the, the person in whom it arises sometimes feel like this is really great. Of course, it is great. It's a great, a great wish. However, even though it's arisen, and what has arisen is living in all enlightening beings, its arising is not its realization. I mean, it's a partial realization and a wonderful realization, but the, uh, the realization of Buddhahood is not the same as the wish. It's not different either, but I mean, it's the, the wish has to be trained. Like for me, I often mention that I heard some Zen stories And uh, I thought, oh, that's cool. I'd like to be like that. I didn't, know that. I didn't know these Zen people were bodhisattvas. I thought they were Zen monks, and I wanted to be like them. Then later I found out that they were bodhisattvas, and what I wanted to be was a 
a Zen monk bodhisattva. But also, I'm willing to be a non-monk bodhisattva and a non-Zen bodhisattva. I really, it's bodhisattva that I want to be. And the Zen form is one of them. But, you know, there's other possibilities. You can be a Tibetan laywoman, an Indian uh, layman, a Chinese uh, professor, a Chinese monk, a Chinese nun, a Japanese monk, Indian monk. A lot of possibilities for lay and monastic bodhisattvas, not just the Zen style. But I wanted to be that, but I, and I thought it was possible, but I didn't know how that would, how that would happen. And then I found out there was a training program. I found out that, that these, uh, the, these Zen monks all did the same exercise program. They all practiced the ritual of sitting still as part of their training. And another part of their training was they had a relationship with a teacher who had previously had a relationship with a teacher who had previously had a relationship with a teacher. And that this relationship with the teacher was a way to have a relationship with this perfect enlightenment, which is living in stillness. And then I found out that there was a Zen center and so on, where you could go and practice the sitting with a teacher. So again, uh, this aspiration of bodhisattvas, which can be actually realized someday as Buddhahood, in other words, this aspiration which can be realized as helping all beings, it needs, ascension being needs training in order to enter that realization. So I, I was going to talk to you about the training during this retreat. I don't, I don't think that the founding Buddha of the tradition, Shakyamuni Buddha, as far as I know, he did not talk explicitly in a, in a detailed way about the training program for bodhisattvas. He seemed to be talking about a training program for the people, for beings, whereby they would be personally liberated, where they would be awakened and personally liberated. He seemed to teach that way. His first talk, in his first talk, he was talking, and at the end of his talk, one of the five people he was talking to awoke from the dream of uh, believing, uh, the dream in which we believe the dream of independent existence from a, from other beings. And that seems to be, that was, um, uh, that was a good, that was a very good thing. And, you know, the whole earth shook when this person woke up. It was really a, 
a spectacular, marvelous event that this person woke up from his delusion. And this person who woke up, along with the other four, was a highly trained yogi. He had, uh, he had practiced uh, enough ethical discipline to be able to practice deep concentration and realize deep states of concentration. So when he met his old friend, who is now the Buddha, and the Buddha gave him these Dharma teachings, his mind was quite open and calm and relaxed and flexible and alert so that these teachings from the Buddha just could go right in and be understood. And he awoke from the dream. And during a not too long period of time, the historical Buddha worked with these five people. And you know, in a matter of months, all of them awoke, and not just awoke, with the original enlightenment, the entry, the initial enlightenment, but they went through the basic four stages which lead to not just awakening from the dream, but liberation, personal liberation from suffering. All of them attained that in a short period of time. They became what are called arhats. But they had already been training a long time, so he could immediately give them wisdom teachings. The first teachings the Buddha gave were wisdom teachings. He didn't give teachings on ethics and concentration to these people. They already knew these teachings. So he just gave them the middle way teachings, Four Noble Truths, and so on. So again, in the, er, in, in the historical records of the Buddha, we do not see the Bodhisattva course being taught by the Buddha to people so clearly, even though the Buddha was demonstrating the, the uh, what do you call it, the complete fruition of the Bodhisattva path. He was a Bodhisattva success story. And his life was devoted to the welfare of others. That's what his whole program was how to help others. That's what he was always working on, because he was heading towards Buddhahood. But he didn't, he, he didn't seem to be teaching the other people how to be Buddhas. He taught them how to be personally liberated. But then later, in the history of the tradition, people started to think, well, we would like to go through the training program that the Buddha went through. We would like to do the practices which lead to Buddhahood. And then the Bodhisattva training program became uh, articulated in India. So around 2,000 years ago, these, the Bodhisattva trainings be, uh, appeared in the world, in, again, in India. And the Bodhisattva trainings are uh, more or less infinite, but still, you can uh, it is possible, and it has been done, that we speak of them rather simply. And one simple way to speak of them 
is in terms of six basic precepts, six basic yogic exercises. They're also called six perfect practices or six perfected practices or six perfecting practices or six transcending practices, different ways, six paramitas. Uh, these are the bodhisattva training methods. All of them are included under these six headings. Anything you can think of that would train and make a Buddha that contributes to the creation of, and realization of Buddha, fall, can, you can put in these six categories. Now, there's a, there's a person I'm, I'm uh, really uh, studying now. I, I should say there's some teachings of a person I'm studying now, and the person's name is a Sangha. And this is an Indian uh, yogi, disciple of Shakyamuni Buddha, who many people think uh, realized the Bodhisattva spirit in his life. And uh, so I will be talking to you about teachings which are attributed to him during this retreat. And uh, he taught that the cause of initial awakening is these six practices, these six perfections. These six perfections are giving, ethical discipline, patience, heroic effort, concentration, and wisdom. Those are the six practices. They're all yogic practices. They are the cause of initial awakening in the bodhisattva path. And he taught, which is what I offer as the title of this course, and he taught that they are the fruit of awakening. So these six practices are the cause and the effect of initial awakening. So you do these six practices, you enter into reality, and when you enter into reality, you do these six practices. You do these six practices, and then you enter reality again, and then entering reality again, you do these six practices. And you enter, re enter reality again and do these six practices, and enter reality again and do these six practices, and enter reality again and do these six practices, until these six practices are fully cooked, which is called Buddhahood. There is a process of transformation that leads one to be able to enter reality, authentically enter, open to it, to be touched by it, to be transformed by it, and then you continue the same practices you did before, but now understanding them quite differently. The 
process, you go, you go through a process by practicing these by which you enter reality, and then having entered reality, you can do these practices more thoroughly than you did them before. You go through a process of transformation to enter, and then after you enter, you do the practices more, and you continue to transform. So one can be transformed enough to enter reality, but still not be completely transformed. The complete transformation of a sentient being is a Buddha. Bodhisattvas are sentient beings who are in the process of being transformed, of their life being transformed into Buddhahood. Or in other words, their life being transformed into nothing, but completely being the benefit of beings. That's all they are. And they're not worried about, well, what happened to me? So that's a basic, and, and so Zen practice, uh, if you see Zen as bodhisattva practice, Zen practice is the cause of entering reality, and Zen practice is then the effect of entering reality. Before you enter reality, you can practice Zen, but you are a little out of touch with reality. Most people who start have not entered. They're living in the middle of it, but they don't, they don't see it. By practicing Zen, you enter reality, and then afterwards, you practice Zen. And a lot of people, a lot of Zen students think, you practice Zen, enter reality, and then you don't have to practice anymore because you're in reality. You're, you're, you're fine, which is true. But you have more work to do if you're a bodhisattva. So again, there, there are many people in China who thought you practice Zazen to enlightenment and then you don't have to practice Zazen anymore. So Zazen for me is bodhisattva practice. Zazen for me is the six perfections. So you practice Zazen you enter in reality, entering reality, you practice zazen. Practicing zazen, you enter reality, entering reality, you practice zazen. But the zazen, uh, as it practices, as it, the way it transforms you, the way it transforms you before you enter reality, is not the way it transforms after. The way it transforms after, is uh, the way it transforms before, is what you might call a worldly transformation. The way it tra transforms after is a transworldly transformation. And probably I'll talk with you about the, what, the, what that looks like, but not, I mean, over and over probably. But now what I would say is that one example of the worldly transformation of Zazen, one example of that would be, for example, I am sitting here. I am sitting still. I am being quiet. I'm going to the Zen center. I'm, I'm practicing Zen. This is kind of a worldly way to look at our practice. 
Another worldly way to look at our practice is to think of our practice. Like, this is practice, and that's not. Or even, this is practice, but it's not separate from anything else. That's a way to think about practice. My daily life is practice. Well, that's right. But, the wor- but in the worldly way of practicing, the teaching that your daily life is practice, you're actually sort of thinking that your idea of practice is the practice. But it's not. But most people have trouble practicing if they have no idea of practice. So they do have an idea of practice, and according to that idea of practice, they practice. And they think that the pra- they sort of think that the practice is what they think the practice is. But it's not. It's just what you think it is. So, you know, detailing zazen, they think that they think the practice, they, they, want, they want to practice giving, and they think that giving is blah, blah. They want to practice ethical discipline. They want to practice patience. And wanting to practice giving is wanting to be enlightened. No problem. That bodhisattvas want practice enlightenment, which means they want to practice giving. And when they are practicing giving prior to entering reality, they practice giving by practicing their idea of giving. And it still is giving, it's just that it's worldly giving because they're practicing according to their idea of it. And you can practice according to your idea and think that your idea of giving is giving And if you practice that along with these other bodhisattva trainings, which is, again, all of them together, I call zazen. You can practice those, and if you practice them, you can actually enter reality from this mundane attitude, from this deluded attitude, from this afflicted attitude that that the Buddha way is your idea of the Buddha way. My idea of the Buddha way is not the Buddha way, and neither is yours. But how can I practice prior to entering reality without an idea? I cannot. Most people cannot walk down the street without the idea of a street, or feet, or a person. So they use it, and they get down the street. Bodhisattvas, before entering reality, cannot do these practices without an idea of these practices. So the Buddha is giving us these practices, and these practices are not ideas. They're the actual, they are enlightenment. Buddha is giving us enlightenment all day long, and some of us are receiving it, and we convert it into ideas. Bodhisattvas receive instruction from the Buddhas and from other bodhisattvas. And, and, and they're given something which isn't an idea. Giving is not an idea. It's enlightenment. They're given enlightenment, and then they convert the enlightenment into an idea of giving, and then they practice with that idea. If they're lucky, they practice with that idea, because after they're given it and they get the idea, sometimes they forget to practice it, as you may have noticed. But they're lucky they get these practices, they practice them, and then they enter into reality and they realize, oh my, how wonderful. 
these practices are not just my idea of them. This is a so then you enter and then you continue to practice them, not excluding your old ideas, but you actually practice them free of your ideas. So then things really start to go nicely. And again, same thing, summarize all the six bodhisattva practices as zazen, same thing. Most Zen students practice zazen according to their ideas and they, uh, they interact with their friends and teachers around their ideas of zazen, and they, and they work with these ideas more and more carefully and more and more thoroughly, and then they enter into the reality where they realize the zazen, which is free of all the ideas they used to realize that freedom from all the ideas they used. So in the Zen school, the word zazen is a nice—it's uh, a nice summary of all the bodhisattva practices, just like six is a nice summary of all the bodhisattva practices. But zazen is even simpler. So I propose to you that if you're in the bodhisattva path and you're practicing zazen, that. Uh, and you're sitting still and quiet, that in that stillness and quiet of zazen, there are these six practices. And I think, I think it'd be good if we understood how when you're sitting, you're practicing giving. How when you're sitting, you're practicing ethics, bodhisattva ethics. How when you're sitting, you're practicing patience. That's actually kind of an easy thing for people to do when they're sitting a long time because they sometimes feel restless or uncomfortable. So it's easy to see in, in a way that there's patience practices when you sit a long time. If you sit only to the point where you see the specter of discomfort and then you move before that, then you maybe miss the opportunity of practicing patience. But during this retreat, some of you may feel some, some stress, so then you can practice patience. Right there, without moving, you don't have to move to practice patience. You don't have to say anything to practice patience. You can, but you don't have to. You can actually notice and be aware, oh, just don't move when you're, when you're yeah. There's an opportunity here to practice patience. And then there's also the opportunity to practice heroic effort. I think a lot of Zen students are pretty heroic in their sitting practice, but they may not notice that they're doing the fourth of the bodhisattva practices, that they're really being a hero to wholeheartedly practice sitting through day after day. And they're doing this. What are they doing this for? They're doing this for the welfare of all beings. They're doing this for the realization of Buddha. But they're, they're, they're looking pretty heroic. They may or may not be knowing that they're doing this practice. And then, of course, concentration is very familiar to Zen students. So it's not a big surprise that you might be practicing concentration when you're sitting there. And some Zen students also are, are up for, well, when you're sitting, you're practicing wisdom. 
So I'm suggesting to you that the bodhisattvas are practicing all these practices. However, yeah. however, they're done in order. There's a sequence. The first one's done first. And based on the first one, the second one's done. Based on the second one, the third one's done, and so on. In other words, concentration is based on generosity. The bodhisattva's concentration is based on generosity. And again, I have the experience of people coming in and talk to me who are sitting and they want to practice concentration and they're having a lot of frustration because they don't feel very concentrated. And they're feeling frustrated and impatient and ungenerous and not careful. So I sometimes point out to them that they skipped over the practices that need to be done in order to be concentrated. And it's not their fault because nobody told them that in order to practice concentration, you have to practice generosity, conscientious ethical behavior, patience, and heroic effort. You have to do those first four before you can be concentrated. If you're agitated and distracted, and you'd like to be calm and undistracted, well, guess what I would suggest to do first? What would I suggest to do first? Go ahead, tell me. What? Exactly. The first practice of bodhisattvas, when anything comes, for example, distraction, restlessness, agitation, those are three things. When they come, bodhisattvas practice generosity towards them. I mean, they vow to, they aspire to, they don't always, they sometimes forget. And when they forget, what do they do with that forgetfulness? What's the first thing they do with forgetfulness of being generous? They practice generosity. Number one, if you're generous, if you're agitated and you're generous towards your agitation, you have just become quite a bit calmer. Right? Can you see that? It's like I'm totally agitated and distracted and I'm totally uh, generous towards that and I feel really calm now. <laughs> In fact, if you are totally, totally calm, excuse me, totally generous towards agitation, you're not just calm, you're also wise. So they're done in order. You can't skip over the earlier ones, otherwise the later ones will be undermined. But although they're, total, they're done in order, in fact, in each one, all the other ones are contained. If you practice giving, more and more deeply, you notice, oh my God, there's, there's ethical conduct in the middle of the giving. Amazing. And then you go deeper, 
and you see, oh, there's patience here. And you go deeper and say, wow, there's courageous effort in the middle of this giving. Amazing. How wonderful. Hey, there's concentration. There's openness and relaxation. Oh, my God, there's, there's reality. Right there in the giving. So giving contains all the bodhisattva practices. Of course, wisdom. Yeah, well, of course, in wisdom, there's giving. Because when you understand reality, you see that everything's in a process, that all beings are in a generous relationship with each other. In other words, you see the wondrous realm of peace and happiness that the Buddhas see through their wisdom. They see that the people who are being kind to each other don't get it, you know? Like, like what is this? Uh, Louis Armstrong says, I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. So the Buddha sees everybody's, you know, walking down the street, hey man, how's it going? But really they're saying, I love you. Everybody's practicing giving. Wisdom sees that. Also, wisdom sees everybody's actually practicing ethics, but they don't get it. They don't get it because they're not, they haven't done these, they don't see that they're doing these bodhisattva practices. We have to do these practices to see that we're doing these practices. So each one contains all of them, even though you still have to do them in order. Again, if each one takes, if each one includes the other ones, what are you in a hurry about going beyond the first one? So if you're doing the first one, say, oh, can I, now can I do the second one? Okay, I'm doing the, I'm doing the fourth one. Can, now can I do the fifth one? You know, don't be in a rush. What you're, you, you know, you're fine the way you are if you just completely be that way. So you can go on. After, you can, it's okay to go on from, from generosity to ethics. It's okay. But don't rush. Don't, don't go ahead until you're settled with that one. And when you're settled with that one, then you can look and see if any faultiness in it ethically, and so on. Once again, uh, I, I think I wrote on the little description here, I don't know if anybody read this besides me. My assistant read it because she typed it. Uh, in the Buddha way, there may, we may speak of two paths of meditation, one before and after, one after enlightenment. The first one is afflicted by innate mistaken belief, by the innate mistaken belief in the inherent existence of self and others. So again, people are naturally believe that they exist separate from others, and that others exist separate from them. That's one belief we have, that things exist on their own, out there, separate from us. So when we, we practice good practices, wonderful practices, but we're somewhat afflicted by this misconception that we're born with, it's innate, I would say. And uh, I didn't make that up myself, un unfortunately. Somebody told me that. The Buddha told me that. 
It's innate. We're born with innate misconceptions. So when we try to practice the way of getting over the innate misconceptions, we use, we're still using the innate misconceptions. Again, we, sh we need to be generous and welcoming to our innate misconceptions in order to calm down with them and get over them. After, by practicing this way, we enter into and become relieved of our innate misconceptions. And then we continue the practices which allowed us to enter into freedom from our innate misconceptions. And now here's one more thing I'll just, maybe it's okay to tell you this right away, and I'll, I'll tell you more later. So another teaching of uh, the later tradition, which was not really articulated very fully by Shakyamuni Buddha, is that there's two levels of mind. Uh, and in the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, which I have been talking about for years, and now there's a little commentary on this sutra, which is being published. In that sutra, it teaches that there's a thing called a storehouse consciousness. And that the the storehouse consciousness is the basis for our, our ordinary karmic consciousness. So I, I brought the teaching out many times that living beings just have karmic consciousness. But another way to say it is all living beings know about is karmic consciousness. But in another sense, they have another kind of consciousness, which is called the storehouse consciousness, which is taught in this Samdhi Nirmachana Sutra. And this great Indian yogi teacher, Bodhisattva Sangha, I think his favorite sutra was this Samdhi Nirmachana Sutra. And then he, uh, uh, he wrote uh, many things, and one of the things he wrote is called the Summary of the Great Vehicle, the Summary of the Bodhisattva Path. And in that text, he makes a extensive argument for trying to show that Shakyamuni Buddha really did teach this storehouse consciousness in addition to active karmic consciousness. And the storehouse consciousness is related to active karmic consciousness. The storehouse consciousness is the result of karmic consciousness. So there's two levels of consciousness. One is the storehouse which supports the active consciousness. The active consciousness depends on the storehouse consciousness, and the storehouse consciousness is the result of the active consciousness. Whenever we have an active conscious karmic consciousness moment, it has consequence. The Buddha did teach every karmic consciousness, every act, every karmic Consciousness, which means every karmic act, has consequence. But he didn't clearly say, and that consequence 
is a consciousness. A Sangha and the Sutra tell us that the consequence of karmic consciousness, which is thought, speech, and posture, the consequence of these karmic moments is another consciousness. And that consciousness is always there supporting the karmic consciousness. So in modern, kind of modern language, the results of past karma is the unconscious. We do not know it consciously, even though it is a consciousness. And it's always there, and every karmic consciousness that, right, like right now, I'm talking to you, I'm looking at you, as I speak to you, it's a karmic act. I'm aware of the sound of my voice. I'm aware of the appearance of your face. Those are karmic moments. And every one of those karmic moments is transforming my unconscious or the unconscious. My unconscious and the unconscious. There is a shared part of this unconscious, a common part to all of us, and an unshared part of it. Each of us right now is an active karmic being, and each of us right now is transforming the unconscious which we share, and each of us right now is transforming the unshared aspects of the unconscious. Again, this is taught in the sutra, and a sangha makes a case that it's not just taught in the sutra, it's taught by Shakyamuni Buddha, He's drawing that out and making an argument for that and showing how this, these two levels of mind are constantly evolving together. They're constantly transforming each other. They are both the cause and fruit of each other. However, the unconscious is called the resultant, but the conscious is not. Even though the conscious is a result, in a sense, of the unconscious because the unconscious supports it. Active karmic consciousness is a result of all of our past karma, but it is not, the it is not really um, embodying all of our past karma. The resultant, the unconscious, embodies all of our past karma. It embodies all the wholesome, the results of wholesome, unwholesome, skillful and unskillful, cruel and kind, all of our past karma is carried, or is, is the carrying or the assembly of all the past karma is the unconscious. But the current consciousness is just wholesome or unwholesome or indeterminate. It's not all of our past karma. It can't support our future karma. It arises together with the unconscious and ceases together with the unconscious. But in the next moment, the unconscious can support any kind of a state because it carries all past states. And this, conscious, this, uh, this, this unconscious, which is the result of all past karma, will continue to support wholesome, unwholesome, and neutral states of active karma. It will continue to support them until it is completely transformed. It's always being transformed but basically it's being transformed in this, into basically a support of uh, worldly states of consciousness. 
when it's completely transformed, it is the Buddha. It is the true body of Buddha. So the teaching here is that this storehouse consciousness supports states of active consciousness, like the ones we're playing with right now. And these active states of consciousness can hear English, or not, not can hear English, they make what they hear into English. Like some, you know, some physical reality may have moved through time and space, and I just made it into the sound of a car. I, I mean, my, my karmic consciousness made it that way. And the Buddha's teaching is now also being converted into words of English and coming into this room, and, and we're hearing them. So the Buddha's teachings are being received by active consciousnesses, which are supported by the resultant consciousness, which is the result of all past active consciousnesses. And that receiving of the teaching transforms this storehouse consciousness in a way that receiving basically self-constructed versions of reality change it in a way to keep the system going forever. But the Buddhist teachings are teachings which will actually transform the storehouse consciousness into a consciousness that basically uh, not there anymore, and there will be no more active karmic consciousness is supported. But again, taking this view of before entry and after entry into reality, that the deluded karmic consciousness can receive instructions for teachings and practice them according to its own idea and enter reality. However, upon entering reality, the storehouse consciousness has not been completely transformed. Some of it has. Enough of it, there's been enough transformation to allow this sentient being to open to reality and enter it. But most of the storehouse consciousness at that point has not been transformed. I don't know most. Nobody can measure. But anyway, there's still a lot of more transformation to go on. And that's the transformation that happens after enlightenment. And so the same practices are done and they, they, they continue to transform the storehouse consciousness until the storehouse consciousness basically is non-functional. And the Buddha is something that grows in dependence on this storehouse consciousness. Buddha is to some, the realization of Buddha is sponsored by karmic beings. Because all Buddha is, is help for karmic beings. And the way the Buddha helps karmic beings is by sending dharma. Karmic beings convert the dharma into images with their wonderful karmic consciousness that, that, and that gradually transforms and perfumes, we say, or permeates the storehouse consciousness to make the storehouse consciousness more and more ready to, let, to be quiet. All, and through this whole process, the wisdom body is growing alongside the body of the sentient being. So that's a kind of introduction to this, uh, this teaching. And uh, 
if you wish to uh, ask any questions now or give me any responses uh, to what I've said so far, I welcome it. Would you like the story? Okay. This is a big story, <laughs> which I think is rather in accord with what I've been telling you. This story, what time is service? What time is the break before service? So you'd like me to make the story about five minutes long? Is that what you want? Is that your request? Do you request that? I actually don't know what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to tell this story now. Is that all right? This story may go on for eons. But if it does, don't worry. You will be so happy if, if it does. So it's a story about... This person it is supposedly a historical person. I don't know if, if Asanga ever lived. He had a brother, and his brother's name is Vasubandhu. I don't know if Vasubandhu ever lives, but I've been studying for about 40 years teachings by, that have Asanga's and Vasubandhu's name on them. So maybe there was a historical person named Asanga who had a brother named Vasubandhu. Maybe they really were great disciples of Buddha. That's what I've heard. And what I heard about Asanga is that he was a great teacher of the teachings for individual liberation. And then he heard about this great vehicle, and he thought, hmm, this, I like these teachings. And he started to study them and became initiated into them. And then, they, and then the story goes that he thought, he was concerned about the state of practicing uh, the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha in India. This is like the fourth and fifth century of the common era. He thought that things were not going too well, that people didn't really understand the teaching and weren't practicing it as, as, as well as they could. And he thought that maybe he thought that maybe he could uh, entice or invoke the presence of the future Buddha. So his understanding and the understanding of some Mahayana practitioners is that we had a historical Buddha who went away and the historical Buddha said the next Buddha, the name of the next Buddha is Maitreya and Maitreya is a living Bodhisattva who's waiting uh, to come and help when necessary. I was talking to Greg last night. You know, the Buddha taught that um, he, he here's the teaching, and things may happen such that this teaching I'm giving to you may become more difficult to practice. Now things are going really well. I put it out there, and people just wake up. It's great. But after I go away, this teaching will still be around, but it may get to a point where people are have, will have trouble practicing it. And it may even get to the point where they have so much trouble practicing it because like, nobody even knows about it anymore. So I was saying, you know, like maybe if, maybe if some religion, one of the religions 
on the planet now would become very powerful and oppressive, it might suppress all Buddhist teachings and kill all Buddhists. When the Muslims entered India in the 11th century, I think, they killed most of the Buddhists and destroyed most of the monasteries. By that time, Buddhism had already gone to China, Korea, Southeast Asia, Japan, and so on. So it was actually really suppressed in India. That could happen over the whole planet, that all Buddhist teachings would be suppressed, and anybody who said Buddha would be silenced. And Greg said, I think materialism might actually might do that. So it might get to a point where advertising and so on, uh, and materialism and the internet will completely suppress Buddhism, and all the little Buddha things will be turned off, and nobody will know anything about it, and we'll have a will have a big need for a Buddha to show up. And Maitreya will come at that point and say, hello. <laughs> hey, it's getting bright here. What's going on? Anyway, Maitreya will come when necessary. That's the idea. Now the teachings of Shakyamuni are doing pretty well still in certain locations. But, my, but Asanga thought, maybe he could just come a little early and help me. And then I could help him. <laughs> I could help him revitalize Indian Buddhism. And he, he didn't think he could just say, come on, Maitreya. He thought, I'll probably have to work out this a little bit. So he went on a retreat. He left his monastery and went into a cave, I hear, and he practiced for 12 years. And so you want, we're going to have lunch before 12 years? But imagine now going into a cave for 12 years and for 12 years meditating on compassion and for 12 years inviting the future Buddha to come to meet you to help this world. Supposedly he did that. Can you imagine? It doesn't say that all day long, every day, he never stopped. But anyway, for 12 years, that's what it, he was working on. He's trying to get this Bodhisattva to come to help him help this world. And the Bodhisattva didn't come, so he gave up and left. But as he was walking away from this cave, he saw somebody, just an ordinary worker, who was making a tremendous work at some project, like really, really hard. He thought, well, if that guy can work that hard at that job, I can go back and work some more. So he did, and he practiced three more years, and Maitreya did not come. By the way, Maitreya means loving-kindness bodhisattva, right? The loving-kindness bodhisattva did not come. And he left again. And again he saw somebody, who, just an ordinary work person, who was making an inconceivable and great effort for some purpose. And he said, okay, I'll try some more. And he went back for three more years. So then still Maitreya didn't come. And he gave up after 12 years of invoking, invoking, invoking the presence of the great bodhisattva and not meeting him. He gave up. And he was walking towards a town, and he saw a dog, a female dog, who uh, her rear quarters were rotting, and she was covered, and, and the, de the dying flesh Actually, in one story I heard, it said the living flesh was covered by maggots. But now we know that maggots don't eat living flesh, it turns out. 
they eat dead flesh. They're friends to you know, someone who has a wound. They actually clean the wound of the dead flesh. And now I guess some medical people now put maggots on people to, pre to prevent gangrene or something like that. But anyway, Sangha didn't know that, so he wanted to help this dog. He thought, well, I, I can't help all Indian Buddhism. My tray is not coming, but maybe I can help one living being. I'll try to help this dog by removing these. Actually, he was mistaken. Remove, he didn't understand. He was going to remove something that was helping the, the dog, but he, his intentions were good. So he actually gouged out some of his own flesh from his thigh, and he was going to put the individual maggots onto his flesh so that it had something to eat. So he's trying to help the dog and the maggots. But then he realized he might hurt the maggots because they're soft little things. He might squish them by pulling them off. So he realized he needed to do it with his tongue. So he bent down closer to this rear end of this rotting dog, and the smell was not good. It doesn't say that he plugged his nose, but he was you know, really repulsed by this. But still, he was getting close to this, got closer and closer. And suddenly, a huge burst of light occurred. And he was knocked back. And he saw that Maitreya was there. And of course, he was very happy and did many prostrations with tears of joy. And finally, when he felt he did enough of that, he said to Maitreya, why didn't you come earlier? And Maitreya said, I was always there with you, but you, your compassion was not ready for me. I do not show myself until beings really develop great compassion. I'm going to stop the story there. I think it's OK to stop there, OK? And just say that this is a model for our life. Zen practice before entering enlightenment is like a Sangha's practice before seeing Maitreya. When you practice Zazen with great compassion, Maitreya is going to show up in your face. And in fact, Maitreya, in reality, Reality is that Buddha is right in front of us all day long. Reality is, reality is Buddha. Reality is Maitreya. Reality is Avalokiteshvara. Reality is all these great bodhisattvas. That's reality. But if we don't practice great compassion, we don't see them, even though they're there all the time. Reality is, in Buddhism, reality is really like a good thing. It's insubstantial. You can't get a hold of it. You can't get under it. You can't get over it. You can't get... It's all around you, it's, and it's helping you all the time. But we have to practice these, we have to practice zazen, which is compassion, which is giving, ethics, patience, and so on. It's these practices in order to see the bodhisattvas are actually with us right now. Just like Maitreya, we have to do that. He was mistaken. He did not see reality. He wanted to see it. And by practicing compassion so much, so thoroughly, so completely, if we hold back on our compassion, we're holding back on reality. Somehow, we have to really practice compassion in order to see reality. But put it the other way is, if we're really compassionate, when we're sitting during this retreat, 
We will enter reality or reality will enter us. We will meet Maitreya. Maitreya might not look like you think Maitreya is supposed to look. It might look like a dog. It might look like Craig or Greg <laughs> or David or Stora. Who knows what it'll look like? But you'll recognize you and you'll be happy. But we're not going to see the truth if we're not kind to our moment-by-moment experience and our moment-to-moment encounters with each other. So in, style, in silence and stillness, enlightenment is living. In silence and stillness, we can practice compassion towards our own experience and towards everyone we meet. So this is the setup. And after we enter, we'll just continue the same practice. But it'll be more and more, more and more free of our ideas of it. And we just continue this because the consequences of all our past karma are this consciousness, which has to be completely transformed, but that's, that's just the most wonderful thing in the world, this transformation process. This is the bodhisattva path. This is the Zen path of entering enlightenment by these practices and continuing these practices and entering enlightenment by these practices and continuing these practices and entering enlightenment by these practices and continuing these practices. That's the, that's the story of a Sangha. That's the story of all bodhisattvas and Buddhas. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so I'm very happy to be uh, sharing these teachings with you. Is there anything else? Maybe that's enough now for this morning. Okay, is that enough? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.